0: Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. What makes a good horror story? Well, if you ask me, it's the same thing that makes a good story, just with deeper wounds. Even though we all have our own individual nightmares, fear is universal. A good horror story has a sense of reality and emotional connection to the characters and a bravery to confront that which makes us afraid— very afraid. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Good horror is good drama plus fear and dread. To me, all good art is personal. It reflects a life led. So many fear films are all about the tropes, the effects, the gore, the screams and the jumps that we forget about what is at the base of them. And that is the fear of death, of dying, of pain. The best writers and filmmakers in the genre draw from that personal pain, not from other movies and books and art. And the most potent pain comes from the heart. It comes from experience outside the movie theater. Reading Stephen King and Clive Barker, watching films by Hitchcock and Cronenberg and Friedkin and Craven, and so many of the rest, you can feel the veracity of the pain at the center of the fear. It comes from moving through life with your eyes and ears and heart open, travel, travel, Fall in love, have your heart broken, lose people who were close to you. Yeah, it hurts, but it deepens you if you let it. It's no fun at the time, but it gives you insight and it makes you a better artist. Whether it's Jack Torrance or Norman Bates, these deeply drawn characters feel like they come from real life. Of course, I like a good old recreational slasher movie as much as the next guy. But the ones I carry with me long after the credits roll, the ones that stick with me and haunt me deeply, are the ones that come from life, not from other movies. Horror is potent. Horror is good for you. Playing tag with your fears can be a lot of fun, or it can actually open your eyes and your mind. If it doesn't kill you, it might even make you stronger. And that's the purpose of this podcast, to find out what makes these dark artists tick, what drives them to paint our nightmares. You can reach out to us on Twitter at PostMortemMG, at Instagram at PostMortemGram, and access a long list of video interviews and making of documentaries at MickGarrisInterviews.com, where we have conversations with everyone from Carpenter to Cronenberg, from Friedkin to Landis, from Craven to Hooper, and all stops in between, available free on demand. We'll be right back with our guest tonight, the very prolific director of three Saw movies, Repo the Genetic Opera, uh, Abattoir, Mother's Day, and a long, long list of genre favorites. Stay scary. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, (laughs) to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer... Now, here's your host, Mick Garris.
2: So, Darren, what kind of kid were you? Uh, I wish I can say that, uh, you know, my parents put me under the stairs and in some kind of uh, dark, claustrophobic uh, basement. Oh, I like was, mine did. Yeah, yeah. right? Okay. Uh, it was actually, you know, pretty normal. Um You know, I I realized very early on in life that I was not into sports. Uh, (laughs) I was not into, uh, you know, a lot of the things that my friends were. I was into movies and I was into um, things that were more macabre. And I I know one of my first memories as a kid was when my brother, um, or kind of my introduction into horror. Is when my brother was leaving home to go to college. Um, I think I was fifth grade, going into six. He was much older than me. He gave me an old suitcase, and in this old suitcase was all of his comic books, and mm. not only his comic books, but his EC comic books. Oh wow! And these are original, so these aren't these aren't the reprint or the re-editions. So uh, you know, I, I remember as a kid sitting in the basement and reading these these really macabre tales, and not just the tales from the Crip, but the weird tales, and the you know they they had so many kind of off brands of that. Um, And so I think that was kind of my first introduction into it. But as a kid, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was more into dress up in theater than I ever was putting on uh, football helmets and whatever. I I will tell you a fun, I don't think I've ever told this story, Uh, and maybe this just goes to cement my love of the macabre. But when (laughs) I was in sixth grade, I was jumped on Halloween night uh, by four or five different older kids trying to take my candy and this was a, this was this was a define, I guess a defining moment for me as a person. Um, I went out and I was dressed as something ridiculous. I forget what it was, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I remember it was myself and a friend and these group of four kids kind of, well, let's say kids, teenagers, much real, teenagers yeah. Yeah. surrounded me and asked for my candy. And this isn't the day when you had just that classic plastic pumpkin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I said, no. And they said, give us your candy. And I'm, I'm like maybe a block from my house. <laughs> and I said, no. And they reached for the candy and I took the the bucket and I swang and I hit one of them in the face and I took off running and, uh, they took off after me and they broke my ribs and my nose. Holy and shit. yeah, uh, and the next day after this happened, my dad, and this is, this is like kind of my, who my dad was, he looks at me and he says, no son of mine will ever be picked on again. And uh, he signed me up for martial arts. So, oh my God. So I say I wasn't a sports person. I take that back. I was huge into martial arts from uh, about sixth grade to college. But uh, that, uh, so Halloween is always a part of my life about, I guess, that change in me where I became more confident as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh you know it's ironic that I've had six movies released in October uh, <laughs> and most of them on Halloween weekend with the Saw franchise. So right, of I've always had these very defining moments as a kid around Halloween. Where did you grow up? Kansas City uh in Kansas on the Kansas side of Kansas City, but mm-hmm. uh KCK I, or KC Mo, as they say. Uh you know it's great I lived I live right on the border of them both. I live really? in the Can- I lived in the Kansas side, but what was great about living where I did was about two no, it does say 2 miles about 10 minutes from my house, they had the most extreme, biggest haunted houses.
1: Really? And,
2: uh, yeah, and they, I remember it was a huge, it was bigger than Christmas where, where I lived. Oh. That my dad, you know, it was a huge thing. All of October, every weekend, he would take me to these haunted houses. And some of them still exist. I was back last, last Halloween. And they still exist. And these things are huge. And I'm not talking about the little scare things you could hear. They're huge. They're warehouses. Um, You know, the edge of hell, the beast, catacombs, all of these huge haunted houses. And it was a, again, a religious experience for me because I would on, you know, I get to go with my dad and we'd wait in line for 40 minutes to go in this, this haunted house. And, and I would wait all year for that thing. This is a great dad. He was all, my dad was all, my dad was awesome. He is awesome. He's still, he's still, he was, he is awesome. Um, I think my dad really taught me to fight for what I believed in and stand up for myself. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relate this to Elvira because Elvira okay. comes in the story. Um, so part of our ritual every Halloween was we would go to a haunted house and my dad would then – we'd go to Blockbuster. And for those that know what Blockbuster is, if they're younger, <laughs> that's a place you went and got videos. Um, we went to a haunted house and we were going to go home that night and watch Elvira. And uh, we had pre- he could pre-reserve movies at blockbuster for those that didn't know back in the day, right? And uh, so we did Edge of Hell, and we ordered pizza, and we went in, and they had rented out the last copy of Elvira, even though we had pre-reserved it. And my dad literally got into war with the uh, I don't know why I have this memory, but got into a war with the cashier and made him go out and check the video return box. For those that don't know, there used to be a drive-up thing <laughs> you can put your uh, and through I remember the slot, through yeah. the slot, and uh, I remember the video the guy getting really angry and going out there, and we found our copy of Elvira. I just have these weird memories as a kid. Like, I don't know why I remember that story and not other things that happened in my childhood. Well,
1: you mentioned theater early, yeah. Uh, earlier. Yeah. And you have... Uh, what is your history in theater? Because it plays into your films.
2: Yeah. I, so I, um, when I was growing up, my parents put me into something called Theater for Young America. And so uh, in lieu of me doing sports, um, you know, after school, I'd go to this theater company, and I would... I was cast into uh, you know various various different productions, and they always treated the kids like adults. It wasn't like I was playing a tree; there were bigger roles. So I did that. I would say five or six years. A funny side story: before we started the podcast, Mick goes, "Don't drink anything carbonated because you're going to be belching." I was like, "No, I'm fine," and here I am trying to hold back. Uh, um, but uh, I was always in love with theater. I went to a theater-based high school after that, and in college, I had a uh, I majored in theater, going into. KU, um, there wasn't really a film program there, so I majored in theater. Um, so theater's always been a huge part of my life. But it was in, you know, it was in high school in a production of Jesus Christ Superstar that I was so enamored and in love with the lights and the theatrics and the costumes. Um, and I was, I was, you know, a, a nothing role in that. And I, I realized that I loved it so much, but I didn't love that I was. Pl- I wanted to create a world. I didn't want to be one part of a world. I wanted to create them. And so, you know, I think in my junior year of high school is when I actually got a camera and started on the weekends going out and shooting things with my friends. But again, in KU, there's really not a big film program when I was there. So I just, I just went into theater hoping that I would find my way into film from that. So uh,
1: in theater, you, you also have music in your background. Mm. And do you play an instrument? What instrument do you play?
2: I, I no, I mean, I... I s- I used to play trumpet as a kid. Uh-huh. Um, I my yeah, I did a little piano, but but very terribly. Yeah. I sing horribly. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I was always a, a wanna-be rock and roll person. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's you know, part of
1: my past. You well, know, I was a rock and roll singer in the seventies,
2: and it was I, I, there's uh, always that that life. That, when I watched those movies. Like I mean, I remember watching Eddie and the Cruisers when I was a kid, oh, yeah. and I was <laughs> like, I want to be. I want I wanted that kind of life, but I was not that talented when it came to musical instruments. Um, But I think that's what led me into doing musical theater and eventually led me into making rock operas is that that desire, that want to to want to be a rock and roll person, but not the talent to actually pursue it.
1: Well, you did music
2: videos early on, right? Is that what led you into the world of Saw? Yeah, you know, it's funny. um, A a truncated version of my story into Saw, I, I... Lucked out, and I found this awesome company. In retrospect, I probably should never tell the story because I'd mm. get a lot of people in trouble. But I worked at a place called the Firm, and the Firm was a management company, and they represented anyone from Martin Scorsese to Leonardo DiCaprio. Wow. But they also represented musicians. They represented the Dixie Chicks, Enrique Iglesias, Corn, um, uh, Limp Bizkit. Uh, and I worked in the mailroom, uh, and this is after I've been fired from X Files and you know uh, <laughs> Van Wilder. I kind of ended up in the tape room and my job, again, there used to be something called video cassettes and there was, <laughs> I, I remember this, yeah. I would dub videotapes. That was my job. And wow. so like if, um, Korn had any music video and they wanted all the managers to see it, I would dub VHS tapes. Um, I remember one a part of my job was like I, they represented Samuel Jackson, and one of my jobs was every Sunday I had to record sopranos for him, and I had to make a tape, and I had to send it to him. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I did. So I was around celebrities, but I was in the tape room, which is literally in the basement of the firm. Um, low man on the toes Oh, very low, <laughs> and. Uh, I, one of my jobs was every time there was a manager's meeting, a music manager meeting, I had to sit in the conference room. And so imagine 50, 45 to 50 high-profile managers sitting around a table, and they would all you know, get their daily or weekly meeting, and everyone had to say what they're doing. Like, oh, we're doing a new video for Limp Bizkit. We're doing a new video for Corn, and, and my job was to sit there and to operate the AV equipment. If the managers need something, I would be the guy to stand up and do it. And I had been at the firm, I want to say a year and a half. And I was broke and I was depressed and I was I was just I was one step away from folding up and going back to Kansas. And uh we were sitting in there and Jeff Quatness, who who was the owner of the firm, uh asked about this band Static X, and he says, so what's the what's the story on Static X? And the manager at the time says, we just their director just fell out and their album was coming out that the next week, and Jeff said, Are we canceling the video? And they I think the response was something like we don't have time to put one together at this late a date. And I stood up, and I I remember I was like an out-of-body experience because I heard what I was saying, but I don't remember doing it. And I said, I'll do it. And Jeff Quantinus looks at me and goes, and who are you? And I see my (laughs) boss, who's now a a huge showrunner and and producer of TV, going, sit down, sit down, sit down. (laughs) And I go, no, I'll do it. And he goes, who are you again? And I said, I work in the tape room. And he kind of stared at me, and there was no smile. And he goes, I need to see you in my office after this meeting. Sit down. And I was like, I'm getting fired. That was it. And after the meeting I went in his office and uh, he goes, So what do you mean you'll do it? And I said, I will do it. I own a three ton grip truck, I own a thirty five millimeter camera package, I will do it for free. And uh, by now, the way, how did you acquire all of this? Well this is okay. So yeah, he goes this yeah. was like on a I wanna say this was on a Tuesday, and he goes, I want a, I want a video on my desk on Monday morning. It was some ridiculous turnaround. Right. So I leave kind of shaken, and the first thing I went to, I went to the basement, into the dub room, and I called my mom, and I said, I need money now, and I had to go (laughs) rent a 35-millimeter camera package and a three-ton grip truck. I had none of that.
1: That's great.
2: And so uh, I I met with them that weekend. We shot a video, I want to say on Sunday night, uh, and I brought it in edited like four days later, put it on his desk and it was on Headbangers Ball that weekend. Wow. And so uh, they kept me at the firm and I still had an office in the dub room. Um, <laughs> I really did nothing 90% of the time and, and ever so often they'd come down and be like, hey, uh, I remember they." The, the second thing I did was Corn. Corn uh, had an album coming out and they asked me to do a video for um, Jonathan Davis. It wasn't like a It was a video. It was a promotional video. So I had to go, I met with Jonathan Davis and we did this video and then I did something for Clay Aiken and I got oh all my these. Gosh. So they literally just had me in the dub room but I was their like, in-house guy and then it ended with me That's doing- That's a pretty big it quick was, step. It yeah. was awesome and that eventually led me to kind of the confidence to uh, lead to the, the Saw film because after I had that, I had some really, at that point I had music videos. I had the Desperate Script which was what Saw was based on But, uh, yeah, I kind of got my start at the firm uh, just randomly doing music videos. That's pretty amazing. Do you draw? Uh, Very poorly. Very, very poorly. Because there's very much a
1: painterly aspect to the music videos and to... You brought a a new aesthetic into Saw. Yeah. You know, the first Saw is very well but very traditionally shot. Yeah. And... Yours is a much more music video aesthetic in that there's there's lots of cuts, there's lots of setups, there's a lot of things like that. Tell me about how that transition worked and and what kind of support you got
2: at Lionsgate when you were doing that. Um, so again, a part two to my firm story, which actually ties into what you asked. Um, when I got the meeting to go in uh, and pitch Saw Two, they had a, Twisted Pictures had acquired my script, The Desperate, and how they got that script was David Armstrong who was a cinematographer, I was going to make it low budget. I was going to make it for a hundred thousand dollars and mm-hmm. I had an investor who was willing to give me a hundred thousand dollars and we were looking for a cinematographer and, uh, somehow it got to David Armstrong and he met with me at the firm. He came in and met with me, uh, and goes, do me a favor. Don't let anyone else read this script for 48 hours. I want to bring it to someone. And I didn't know what saw. Saw wasn't out yet. Saw, I think mm-hmm. it just left Sundance. And so, uh, about 36 hours later, I get a phone call from this, this guy named Mark Berg and uh, Greg Hoffman, and they said, we want you to come in. We want to make The Desperate. It was not Saw two. It was The Desperate. And uh, long story short, I met with these guys, and they were going to make it for I think like a million dollars, very very similar to Saw, and it was going to be its own film. Um Very quickly, though, Sundance happened. Uh, Saw got a lot of traction, and Lionsgate demanded a sequel. My lawyer, who I'm still with today, was very awesome. When she did the deal with The Desperate, there was a clause that says, I was attached to direct or of of The Desperate or any variation thereof. Hmm. So when The Desperate became Saw 2, she said, well, he's directing it. And I think there was a momentarily fear of, like, no, he's not. (laughs) And she was like, no, he is if you want the script. And so I got called into Lionsgate. This is, this is another of my line stories, which, which I've done quite a, quite a lot in my career. I'm sitting there with, with, and there was a lot of people in the room, and they said, why should you direct this film? And I, I forgot some impassioned reason I gave, and they said, have you ever done anything horror-based? And I hadn't. I mean, I directed a Static X music video, but I hadn't. And I said, yeah, of course, I've, I've had horror shorts. <laughs> and they said, uh, I think it was Pete Block at the time, said, well, we need to see one of them. And I said, absolutely, I'll bring it into you on, on the first of the week. And so I went home and I called my mom again. And I was like, Mom, <laughs> I have a huge opportunity. And you know, bless my parents, they sent me more money. And that wow. weekend I, I had all my friends come together and we shot something at the firm that they didn't know about. And it was a dance piece. It was, it was literally dance, um, but it was green. Um, it had green hues in it. It had violence in it. And it had spinny 360 degree camera movements. Mm. And it, it, this is where the aesthetic for what I did came from. We didn't have any other lenses. We had a single lens. And uh, what
1: what lens was it? See, I
2: don't remember, but I can tell you yeah. that the, the, the camera we shot on. This is a fascinating story. I'm going to tell you in a second about the camera. <laughs> um, the camera was an old Russian camera, and, and uh, I'm going to come back to the camera because you're going to hear the story. It's a good story. Okay. Um, so, in lieu of not having lenses, I had to think of what we can do to give it an aesthetic. So we did uh, speed ramps. We would turn the camera on and off to, to get the flash frames. We would ramp it mid uh, mid shooting. But the other thing is, we would do uh, bump the lens. We take the lens. Out and shake the lens to give it that crazy, that crazy aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And so I cut it together with the speed ramps, with the shaking lens, with all of that. And this is stuff you came up with at, at the moment. At the moment. You weren't we weren't planning no, it before. We anyway. had no tools. Yeah. Um, so we, we did all that. And so I edited it together and I brought it back into Lionsgate. And I think, I mean, it was a two minute thing called scavengers. Um, and that was green. I mean, I think it's even on my website somewhere. You can see a little a little teaser of it. But if you look at that, and then you look at the first trap I directed and saw two, it looks identical, literally identical. Mm. So it came the the idea for that came from just not having any tools. But the camera, this is an awesome horror story, and this is true. The DP, uh, a guy named Roderick Stevens, um, he, he had this camera. This really old camera, and he bought it on an ad online. Well he found out that the person that had the camera before him committed suicide and it was a filmmaker and the filmmaker shot her, I think it was a, it was a female shot her first feature film. But after shooting the feature film, she had spun all of she she had, she had used all of her own money. Uh, I don't know if she'd done a second mortgage on the house, but the film was a failure and she ended up committing suicide and they found her and the camera in a field. Now, I didn't believe that story, and then he started producing the, the, the newspaper articles to actually back this story. up. Oh my up. god! But the story the, the actual camera itself came from another macabre thing, which I don't know if it's true. But another, there so was two deaths associated with this camera. And now Print I'm, the legend. I know, <laughs> and I'm like, am I going to be the third one on this about losing my <laughs> career? But uh, but anyway, that's how I got uh, the kind of look, which just we had. I, I had no lenses, I had no toys, I had no cranes, So I just what can I? I can shake the lens. I can turn the camera on and off.
1: And so they saw the aesthetic that you had created for this short film, which was your pitch film for for directing Saw. So what was the reaction to that? Because it is so stylistically different from the original film.
2: I, I don't... You know it's crazy, and I've never had this again in my career. Saw 2, no one really... No one screwed with me. No one. Yeah. There, was, there was literally no one on set that came in and flexed their muscles. That wasn't until Saw 3, and I think because... They didn't realize they had a franchise. I think in part two, and I, I'll tell you, when I finished two and turned it in, Lionsgate at that point thought it was a straight-to-video movie. I, mm. I still remember those. This is the, another. I have all these great memories of <laughs> I, when Saw two was done, and I turned my edit in. Um, Greg Hoffman sent me an email uh, after, and one of the for me as a filmmaker, the worst part of being a filmmaker is that first test screening with the producers oh, and financiers because I'm just dreading it. I'm dreading it. And now with email, you can't leave. Like I can't like go to dinner because the phone always comes with you. So mm-hmm. I'm always prone to hearing that beep and then realizing you know the reaction. They had responded with something, and I forget what it was, but it was something like, they don't know if this is a theatrical film or they're just going to go straight to video with it. And I, res- <laughs> I didn't realize that I was BCC'd on the email. <laughs> and so he had responded to it, and I could go back and I can see their thing. And I hit reply on, I put fucking ass clowns. Sorry if you have to oh, beep that out. Oh, that oh, went to man. all of Lionsgate. And so, I had a similar yeah. experience oh. on a project that I'll tell you, maybe privately. <laughs> so, um, that, you know, so so originally, saw. I don't think anyone knew that Saw 2 was going to be what it was. Yeah. And then by the time Saw 3 came around and they realized they have a franchise and it's profitable— there was a lot more there was a lot more of a microscope underneath me and the franchise. Well, tell me how
1: that was different. It sounds like they let you alone in Saw Two, and you made yeah. a Darren Lynn Bousman film. Yeah. Tell me the difference about going into the franchise business when
2: they know they 've got something that 's a big theatrical release for them. Well, we had a tragedy. I mean Saw two, I had this amazing producer named Greg Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Hoffman died in between Saw two and three. Oh, so he was like the he was one of the pioneers of the Saw film. So now um, I'm moving forth to make a third f- sequel or second sequel without the kind of the, the founding fathers of it. And so I think number one that caused trepidation with Lionsgate. Also at this point now now that they have two successes, if I screw up and do mess it up, that could kill the franchise. There were a lot more cooks in the kitchen, let's right. say. Um, there was a lot more arguing about whose idea was right, and everyone had a different idea. And you were working with new writers, too. Uh, yeah, no, three three was not. Three, it was four. four. And, and by the way, the Saw films came increasingly harder for me to do, and that's eventually one of the reasons I left. Uh, on three, it was still Lee L. So on, on two, oh, okay. myself, I wrote it, and then Lee, did a, Lee came in to, to, to Sawify it. And saw three, Lee wrote the whole thing himself. Okay, um, and then Saw Four uh, is when Patrick, Patrick and yeah, yeah Marcus came in. Mm-hmm. But it was hard because I felt there was someone always over my shoulder. I was always having to explain what I was doing in Saw Three. Um, however, Saw Three is my favorite of the ones I did. But then Saw Four came around, and it was it was it was too intense at that point they knew it was it was it was a popular franchise they knew it was a cash cow and i think at that point it became so intense to get something i want to say original through mm-hmm. because everyone was scared they were scared of jumping you know jumping the shark or right. you know killing off the idea and i had already done some pretty some brash things where you capture Jigsaw mm-hmm. on the first two minutes of Saw 2, kill him in the first few minutes of <laughs> Saw 3. I think they were terrified of what I was going to do now because I was just killing off their franchise as fast as I could. But Saw 4 was intense. Well, in what way? Um, but tell ex- me about walking that line of
1: expectations
2: and trying to
1: be a creative filmmaker and storyteller.
2: Well, that's, I mean, I think part, you just, one of the things is, living up to the hype of the, of the last two films because now you have a huge audience and you have to take the audience into consideration. It's no longer, let's make a movie and let's, uh, it, it was, what do the audience want? We have a huge fan base now. Um, what is it they want? Are they going to be upset if we do this? Or are they going to respond to this? And also the audience was smart at this point. They were figuring out our twists as quick mm-hmm. as they could. So we had to try to always one up the audience, um, there was fear. I think it got more intense for me and more it went along because I did Saw 2, I didn't realize what I was doing. It didn't hit right. me what it was. Saw 3, I was riding off the high of having a number one movie with Saw 2. So mm-hmm. I think, and they happened so quickly. They literally happened back to back to back. By the time Saw 4 happened though, the stress of the past two films, the hype of trying to beat out what I did on Saw 2 II and uh, 3, it, it was it was just, it was too much pressure I felt and it stopped being fun. Um, also at that point, since they happened so rapidly, I was starting to get tired. Um, I couldn't think of awesome ways to kill people as, as, <laughs> as, as I was before, because I don't think there was that time to sit back and breathe because we had a date to hit. We had to hit this date. Um, also we had new writers coming in on the fourth one. Uh, and then, so you you, everyone wants to put a thumbprint. I want to put my thumbprint. The writers want to put their thumbprint. And so now you have many more thumbprints that people want to put on the Saw franchise at that point. And my job as a director is not to be your friend. It is to put the best creative vision on the thing and fight for what I believe in. And sometimes fighting for what I believe in means going against the people that are writing my checks. <laughs> right? And I think yes. that that was, that was a hard thing for me because I'm 27 years old now and I'm telling, literally telling people to F off. I'm like, I'm not, that's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do yeah. that. Yeah. I realized at that point I was throwing Molotov cocktails on uh, bridges that I was, I was burning <laughs> bridges right and left on yes. this. So it was rough. <laughs> but it's a very
1: unusual circumstance for some uh, a director to come in and do 2 3 and 4 in a franchise and uh, well, the point i was making earlier about james wan's film being stylistically so different and then it became iconic became this huge success during the time you were making number 2 mm-hmm. so to come in kind of in the middle and then go out i mean yeah. it, it feels did it feel more like you were working
2: in a corporate Land or it didn't until Saw Three. Um, mm-hmm. Saw Two didn't because again well, that was I, your first time in and it was your script. Yeah, it was, it was my basically. script. It was yeah. the first time doing it, um, and also it was a completely different crew because James shot his in L.A. I shot mine in Canada, so it was kind of we. It was a removed film, um, and also your first feature. It, it was, and it was, it was, it was. Even my notes on Saw Two. I remember, you know, now I dread getting the the, the note phone call. But on the, the notes from Saw Two, I remember Oren Coolis called me, um, one of the producers, and he goes, All right, Bowsman, get a pen and paper. Put your put your editor on the phone. Are you ready? Sit down. Are you guys ready? And then he gave us like two notes. And I was like, I was silent. And he goes, Good good job, guys. And that was it. Wow. And I was just like, oh my God, like this so this is what making movies like. And like I really Oh yeah. Well and, and this <laughs> you had a lot to learn after that. Uh, I, well, what I was crazy about it was uh, you know, at Saw Two, I I, t- I was twenty five when I made it. I, it was such a breeze to make the film. It, was, it comes out, there are posters everywhere, there are trailers everywhere, there are radio ads everywhere. And I'm like, this is what making a movie is. This is, ho- this is, this is what it is. And then I get hit with the reality when I make a repo that, no, I rode the best roller coaster first. Now I'm on the kiddie rides. And I have to work my way back up or wait in another line for six hours to get on that, that ride again. I was spoiled very, very quickly. Yeah, well, let's talk about starting over, basically. You did these
1: three hugely successful films in a row, and then you decide to leave that cash cow and make a movie that your heart is in and your passion is in. And it is a rock opera, which was certainly not in vogue at the time. Tell me about that experience of moving from that. Because Peter Block was still involved with this at the time, who was one of your big boosters and a great, wonderfully creative guy who has one of the biggest Stephen King collections in the world. Yeah, Uh, He was a Lionsgate executive. So I know he was a booster for you and behind you.
2: Yeah, it it was um, was the hardest... it was, it was extremely hard because um, making Repo, I, no one really wanted to make it. Uh, I, at that point, I mean, I basically blackmailed the studio. I was like, <laughs> um, I said to them, I'll come back for Saw 4, but only if you make Repo. And no one wanted to make Repo. No one did. Uh, but I got into wanting to be a filmmaker because I wanted to tell new and unique stories. And part of my mandate as a director is I only want to tell stories that I can tell. If anyone else can tell the same story, then let them tell it. I want my name to be... Known for things about the unique voice and vision, and so Repo was was the first of those kind of movies because I knew that I could tell it, and that I knew I was in a unique position to tell it, and no one would be able to tell it like I was. So it was, it was worth, entirely your baby. It was, and so it was worth me fighting for, and so I fought and I fought with the you know the heads of of the studio, and I said this is the movie I want to make, and. Um, They, they finally said, okay, Uh, it's kind of be careful what you wish for. They said, fine, I made it. And I went from being the number one director in America, three number one hits (laughs) being in the Guinness book of world records to literally having a $12 million movie open for like a dollar. Oh my! And, um, it was, uh, you know, it's talk about getting falling from grace quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, phone calls stopped being returned almost immediately because at that point, when when Repo came out, uh, uh, going straight to video was a kiss of death. No, it's mm-hmm. not. It, right. Then it was a kiss of death, and one that was as expensive as Repo. Um, I remember that— That's a big budget for an it, independent It was huge. Yeah. It was huge. And uh, I, I remember going in and sitting with John Feldheimer, who ran the studio, and I, I said— um, Give me the movie back. Let me have it back. Let me take the theatrical and let me... I, I know there's an audience for this. I understand the finance... I didn't then. I understand why they didn't put it out. It's a weird movie. They'd have to put, you know, millions and millions of dollars behind it to push it. They, they just wanted to hedge their bets and I get it now. But they let me take it on the road and, and do what I wanted to with it. And I started the road show, which was myself and Terrence Adunich going from town to town in a van, four walling theaters. Wow. And which was awesome was uh, we were in two theaters when we opened. We were in one in New York and one in L.A. That was it. And we started this road show. Well, by the end of the first month of the road show, we were now in 10 theaters constantly every weekend, then 20 theaters, then 50 theaters. In its height, we were in hundreds of theaters with no PA, zero and And this was only in the days of MySpace because right, it was yes. like this underground fandom that were popping up where people were dressing up like – it's like Rocky Horror. They were dressing right. up like the characters. They were singing the songs uh, to the scream. And I remember I got an email from this. is I, I, there's a few emails that I've gotten in my career that I, I print off and I'm like this, this, it, it means something to me. And it was an email I got from Joe Drake, who hmm. was a, again, kind of took over in that time, uh, of Lionsgate where he basically congratulated me. He says, you believed in it, you fought for it. And I'm glad to see this thing expanding. And it, it, you know, in that t- when 2008, when it came out, uh, Two theaters to go to 100 theaters with no p And it was all this groundswell of the artists basically taking it on the road saying, It's your sweat. We yeah. believe in it. Yeah. And uh, that kind of changed my career. And that's kind of where I've gone since then is about uh, doing things that I believe in and fighting for them and finding the audience for them.
1: And it's a much more independent world. And that's, that's a hard Scrabble world. I mean, yeah. talk about uh, your experience in trying to raise money for those individual
2: visions that you have. It's it's so it's 95% of my day is business and I hate it. It's mm-hmm. um it's picking up the phone and constantly calling and constantly emailing. And literally almost like a telemarketer. I hate myself sometimes because I f- sound so desperate and needy. <laughs> um and uh but I've been lucky in my career that I've been able to constantly find money. And, and you're
1: constantly making movies. It's yeah. amazing how, how often you are shooting and I mean, where in the world
2: you're doing well, it. Well, that's the thing is I've, I've, I've had an a insane kind of career because... I wasn't able to make movies in Hollywood. I'd done two commercial failures. I went from repo to mother's day. Hmm. And, uh, so after repo happened, I was like, okay, I loved what I did with repo and I was very proud of it. And it, it's the, the, the work speeds for itself and it's still in we for hitting the 10 year anniversary of repo. Wow. And it's still in theaters now. Um, but uh, I was like, I gotta do come. a
1: reunion tour. <laughs> we
2: are, yeah. uh, with that as the plan, we're going to do a, uh, kind of cool thing for the fans. Um, but here was a, it was a crazy thing. Is I, I just said, I'm coming back, and I've got to do another big movie. I have to do another studio film, and it's got to be good. I've st- got to stop being pretentious and, and doing songs and dance and feather boas. So I found this script that I thought would have been a really commercial film called Mother's Day, based on obviously the trauma film. Right. Um, the great trauma the, film. The, well, yeah. <laughs> before, I, before I would do it, I, I told – Brett Ratner brought it to me. And I, I said, I won't do it unless I get the approval from the original director and creator. And obviously it was, it was Lloyd and his brother. Right. And uh, they set up a call and I told them what I'd want to do. I said, listen, I can't make that movie now. And I was like, I can't. You know, th- that, that, that movie now has been borrowed and taken from a million times over. Yeah. And I said, what I do want to do is take the concepts. I want to take the characters and I want to re-envision it as if it were happening today. And I, get, I kind of pitched this whole thing out. They agreed to it, and they said, "Yeah, we support you in this kind of ideas," which set myself and the writer Scott Scott and the Lum out to kind of re- our reimagining of it. And I was re- we got Rebecca De Mornay, who, who I know very well. <laughs> I know from <who's> Shining. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just saw her yesterday. I, I was on really? TV. I know I didn't see. I oh, watched uh, yeah, her yesterday yeah. on uh, Risky Business, which I've not oh, seen. Oh my god, that was the first thing I ever saw her in. And boy, she is talk about a debut! I know. Wow.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, on the train. Yeah, the train.
2: You know, yeah. when uh, when our cast party, she came over to my the place I was staying in Winnipeg, and we all had a lot, a little too much wine, uh-huh. and uh, somehow risky business ended up on the TV, and she sat and did a running commentary through the entire thing, and wow. I was like, "What is my life? This is so crazy." <laughs> yeah. Um, but I finished, I finished Mother's Day, and I was so proud of that movie. Uh, from a, the acting to the shots to even the restraint in some of the scenes, it looks mm-hmm. like a vicious movie, but when you watch it, it's really not. Uh. And we got bought almost almost right away. And the company that bought the film went under. And then a lawsuit happened and our movie got held up. And I think we shot it in 2009, eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And it was three years after we shot it before it came out. And it had to be bought out of this, this company. So imagine the perception of a movie that's been shot and on a shelf for two years. Uh. And so that, that was the nail, I think one of the final nails. of my. So I, I have a huge failure with Repo. And then I make this other movie that sits somewhere for two years. And so no one wanted to hire me. At that point, I was unhirable.
1: How must that have felt? I mean, you, you started with confidence. And you started out with hit, hit, hit all in a row. You were the top of the world in your fucking 20s. Yeah. And so suddenly you get—it's like being hit with a mallet, right?
2: Uh, yeah, and you know what—that—that that led to my—I call it my era of desperation, which uh, I, I hope I'm out of now. But uh, <laughs> so after this happened with uh, that movie, I, I said, "I got it. I got to get right back right now. I'm going to make the first movie that comes to me. I have to have a theatrical release." And out of desperation. I took another film that I, I. It's my biggest regret of my career, and not because I don't like the movie or I don't like the people involved in it. I said yes to a movie out of desperation, as opposed to getting the right script. And it was called instead a, of out of passion, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it was I loved the producers of the film. I loved the financiers of the film. It was my fault completely. And it was this thing called Eleven Eleven, and mm. I did it because um, I got to go to Barcelona. Uh, And I wrote it, so it's my fault. And uh, I was like, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's great. Let's go. And, uh, you know, now I've learned that just because you have the ability to make a movie doesn't mean you should make a movie. Mm. And so, you know, uh, the writing was on the the, – I should have known very early on it was a mistake. And I'll give you one funny story that happened while shooting in Barcelona. Is I had this great big vision, and there were supposed to be these 111 demons, and I wanted contortionists. And so the idea was we were going to hire seven or eight contortionists, and then we were going to stamp them and put them around. And so I kept talking about these contortionists, and I I realized that it was like two days from filming that I'd never seen them, and I hadn't seen the audition tapes. And uh, they're like, "Don't worry, we're fine." And I'm dealing with a local company that in, in Barcelona. You never want to hear, "Don't worry." No, no. So this is this is great. So I show up to set the day these contortionists are supposed to be there, and this is where I, I should have known. And I see there's there's people on the side of the road, and they have signs that say "Repo the Genetic Opera." We love Darren. And I'm like, oh, I've never had a fan. I've never had like a, something like this before. <laughs> and so I get out, and I get surrounded by these like seven or eight people that are huge Repo fans from Barcelona. And they're asking for pictures, and they're asking me to sign their copies of Repo. And I sign their copies of Repo, and I take pictures. And I say, guys, thank you so much. Like, i got to go in and, and shoot now. And they started following me. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to go shoot. And they're like, where are your demons? And I'm like, what? And they put an ad out, and it says, Repo the Genetic Opera fans, do you want to be in Darren Bousel's movie? being oh, filmed? No. And so they hired fans to play the demons in the movie. And the best was, is not only do they hire fans, they provided their own wardrobe. They just gave them like a cape to put on over it. So even in the movie now, you can see kids with converse in the background. (laughs) Oh, no. And uh, And they weren't contortionists. No, they were not. They were zero. I had zero (laughs) contortionists in 11-11. The vision was not fulfilled. I know, but that was awesome. I got to go to Barcelona. Uh, That's an amazing. City. Oh, it was, it was great. All it the was, Antonio Gaudi. And, you know, I, yeah. I, my my uh, hotel overlooked a huge guy. It was just a beautiful, and it was an amazing experience for me. And It was the first time that I was in a foreign place like that. Uh, you know, doing what I love to do, and even at, even at my worst, film it was a, it was an amazing learning experience for me. And so to to have to communicate with the crew that English isn't their first language. Mm-hmm. Um, And so uh, I think I learned more from that film than I have anything else I've done, just what not to do again.
1: Well, starting with Saw 234, your career was bound to be consigned to the horror dungeon. Yeah. So um, how did you feel about that? Is that something that you were good with, that you wanted to do, that was your primary interest, or you just
2: wanted to make movies? No, I wanted – well, yes, I wanted to make movies, but I think as a kid growing up, um, it was it was horror that moved me and inspired me. It was horror that kind of uh, – if I think of all those pinnacles in my life, these memories that I have as a kid, they go back to the haunted houses in Kansas City, the watching Elvira with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 these, it are these moments that kind of moved me as a kid. I remember that every time – no, we didn't have Comic-Cons in Kansas City or we didn't right. have these kind sure. of things we have now. But we would drive to conventions where I could meet Robert England. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, that he was my hero. When my friends were growing up talking about Pete Rose, I was talking about Robert England, not Freddy Krueger, but Robert England, right. who was someone that I could look up and to inspire. And I remember one of my kind of first directors that I actually. Had a reverence for that I talked about was John McNaughton, mm. and you know I'm a I'm a 12 year old kid talking and no one no 12 year old knows who John McNaughton <laughs> is but I was talking about like a Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer lunchbox and so um, you did know, that exist no but oh, okay. it makes it makes for a better story if it, it did. does <laughs> uh, but I, I think that you know that was as a kid. I couldn't get into kid movies. It was always mm-hmm. watching the thing. And it was one that you actually directed. It was it was watching, um, I remember one of the first things, I had a TV in my room. And I was one of the first kids of my friends that had a TV in my room. And I remember watching Freddy Nightmares, the, oh. the Nightmare on Elm Street TV show. Yeah, And I would wait up late, and it came on like 10.30 or 11. And, and I had it in a black and white TV in my room. And I can remember... That was like, that was so taboo.
0: And that's,
2: I loved that. Like that was me as a kid. So I always wanted to make movies, but I was always drawn to the macabre. And so, you know, if I ever have free time now and I'm watching a movie, it's something dark. It's never something light. It's never something happy. So I would say that horror has always been my thing? Would I make another movie? Yeah, but it's going to have a dark undertone to it. It's never—I'm mm-hmm. never, never going to make a light-hearted movie. It'll always be macabre in nature.
1: So, were you an outcast as a kid, or you, you were social and uh,
2: had lots uh, of friends and the like? But you were the only horror guy, or? The story I'll tell my son is, I was very popular and everyone liked me. But the reality <laughs> was, no, I was a theater nerd. I was, yeah. uh, you know, I was—that's even worse than a horror. I know, nerd in a lot I know. Yeah. Uh, my brother. Uh, kind of shaped my taste very young. And so it was just the two of
1: you siblings. So uh, I have you, a sister
2: as well. They're both yeah. half. My brother lived with us uh, when I was growing up. Um, so different dads. Yeah, my my mom had a kid and my dad had a kid, and so they, then they both had me together. So they're each oh, half. Okay. Um, but my brother, the this is I've told this story a lot, and I think people think I'm joking. I'm well, not. then never mind. Don't tell I it. Don't, don't want to no, hear okay. it anymore. Yeah, I'll go. <laughs> uh, he showed me when I was young, and I was in grade school. And he goes, "If you ever tell mom and dad I showed this to you, I'm going to kill you." And he showed me Cannibal Holocaust. Oh my god! Now you have to imagine that's hard to watch now as an adult. For me, I yeah. can't get through it. And I, I know Ruggiero.
1: I man. know, <laughs> and that's
2: as a child, as a as a kid watching Cannibal. And this was the original oh. with with the with the the turtle scene and all that. Oh, I was oh. so. Oh, and it was a double feature he did and it was it was he was babysitting me and it was Cannibal Holocaust right after that was Henry Porter, the serial killer. Oh my god. So those two movies as a <laughs> child uh, I think snapped something in my brain and I think mm-hmm. that ever since then I've not been 100% correct. Well, who were your heroes who inspired you? It, I always go back to Craven um, in the way that uh, well, he first off, I like all of his films but The one that always hit me um, as a filmmaker and the one that I talk about as a filmmaker and why is Last House on the Left and not Mm -hmm. because of the movie or the subject matter or any of that. It was just one scene. It was one scene in that movie that made me think about film in a different way and it was the scene after Krug and his, his band of misfits raped and killed one of the girls and there was another girl on the ground. I think they had just carved their name on her. And she's crawling away and the, he looks at his hands and they're covered in blood and he's picking grass off of it and they all look disgusted. And they look at each other and there's this momentary disgust and regret. And they're like, what, what the fuck did we just do? And they kind of all look at each other and they make the decision we have to kill her. They have to continue with this thing. And they he gave the villains 20 or 30 seconds of remorse before they went back to being villains mm. and that disturbed me more than anything I'd seen because usually villains are just villains they're right. bad. How old were you when you saw this? All these movies I was about 10 or 11, 12 wow. maybe. I was young. I was really young. Uh, very liberal parent. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't think they knew half or the stuff that was going Yeah, oblivious <laughs> parents. <laughs> okay. had a TV in my room. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, uh, right. <laughs> I think uh you know that was that was a huge thing for me because it showed me that it can give me reactions. It could it could actually inspire something or not inspire um it made me feel something other than just the disgust. I was like, "This is weird. Why is he trying to make them good people when they're horrible people?" So that always stuck with me. Fright. Those people are
1: three dimensional.
2: Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, Fright Night as well, because Gremlins is another one because I wanted mm. movies that I wanted to live in. Now I never wanted to live in Last House on the Left or Henry. <laughs> no, I but hope not. No, yeah. but you look at, you look at something like Fright Night or you look at something like Gremlins. I want to live in those worlds. Like I want to live in a place where these things could exist. And that's why I think going into Goonies and things like that, anything that had that sense of adventure to it as a kid. I wanted to do that. I yeah. wanted to live in those type of places. You're Talking
1: about two movies, I did the making uh, of documentaries. I, I know on. That. Gremlins and Goonies. Yeah,
2: they are. Uh, but those those type of things. I think as I get older, now that I'm, I'm mean, about to my second kid, I would love to be involved with more stuff like A Goonies, which still yeah. has that horror undertone, but definitely you, yeah. not. Not necessarily a horror film. You look at it now. This may be bad, but I showed my I've shown Henry Gremlins. a three year old. Yeah, I've shown Henry Gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> he actually has a mogwai in his room, so he awesome. has a little.
1: Yeah, so and uh, it comes to life at night. It and, comes yeah, to life. Yeah, things, don't get it wet. No. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Craven. Who Who else did you really get
2: inspired by? Um, I mean Spielberg in the way that, and it's weird now thinking back on it because. I remember Spielberg as a child, and and a lot of directors that that you know I come to revere now. I didn't realize it's a child; like I've I've discovered them later in life. Hmm. Um, Spielberg was one because I think that, he, that obviously, like many kids, his movies had an impact on me growing up. Whether it be you know E. T. or Close Encounters, any of these things, these are movies that I watched with my whole family. And uh, usually they would have a kid as the centerpiece or mm-hmm. one of the main things. And so I think I was able to relate to those. And again, they still had that, I don't want to say sinister undertone, but they still There's had, that, darkness dark, to it. They had yeah. that dark undertone to them. Um, I, I do remember movies that I watched the hell out of that I couldn't as a kid tell you who the directors were. But again, going back now, any of the anthology movies, going back to watch any of the creep shows or Tales from the Dark Side or any of those, I go back at now and I just – I. There was something fun about them, and again, dark, and, and they were easily digestible. Like Cannibal Holocaust, that's not an easily digestible film, <laughs> not by but anybody. No. You go back yeah. and watch, you know, the Tales from the Dark Side of the Creep shows, or any of these, uh, or no, Tales from the Crypt. That was it. That's I, a great it, one. Tales from the Crypt uh, it was again these twenty-seven minute, twenty-six minute things that had A-list actors that you would know uh really really John, uh, and, and i had the comic books as a, and, and by the way some of those ec comics the original ones that i had you can find where the source material was yeah. uh, they they were set in like you know some some of the the comic books might be set in victorian and this is a modern but it's the same story right and so tales from the crypt to me probably was the defining thing as a child where that was something that I watched religiously. That was my Game of Thrones. HBO, right. that was my Game of Thrones, was Tales from the Crypt. And so I was watching that at a real young age. But I love that Bob Zemeckis remade the, the one about the Santa Claus uh, all
1: through the house. Wait, uh, what was that? What uh, On Tales from the Crypt, right. the TV series, yeah, yeah. that was one of the first three that they did. It was a, oh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a pilot of three of them that was uh, Walter Hill and Bob Zemeckis and uh, Richard Donner. And they put it out as a 90 minute movie, but it was three episodes of the show. But the original British uh, movie from the seventies um, had the same story that Zemeckis remade that came from the EC comics.
2: Um, I had a, I, when EC was still publishing, I wrote a short story and I submitted it to them. They had a, they had a thing you could write into and it was like a, it had to be one page and it had to be a, a macabre story. And, uh, Wait, so EC e- EC Comics had a thing because I thought
1: they closed down. They, in the they, late they, 50s. They did, yeah. but
2: when they when they did the reprints, when they came out oh, with the, like the reprints, right. they had a thing the that Russ, uh, yeah, 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 they had a thing that you can you could submit stories to. Wow! So I bought the book. So maybe in the eighties or nineties, they came out with these reprinted editions. So I had right. all these old. Those the, were beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So I started. I had a mail thing. And I would get them in the mail maybe every other month. I would get two or three books that came through it, and right. in it they still, if you remember, but they still had which was really cool. Remember in the back pages of comic books, they would have like the, the glasses that you could see through. Yes. They still had those in there and they right. had a writing competition. And uh, I submitted something. I must have been in middle school at that time. And I remember getting back a letter from the reprint EC. And it was one of those – Russ cool, Cochran. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was one of the things I had framed. And it was like, you are a macabre writer. You keep writing. This is disturbing. Wow. This is dark. And and I think that was another thing that pushed me to want to be a writer as well. Because here was a book I admired that's been around since the fifties, and now I'm like, holy crap! I'm getting I'm getting a, a letter that came back that says EC in the title, and that was like a, that was another huge thing for me.
1: Well, tell me, we're talking about uh, anthologies now. Um, mm-hmm. You were one of the ten directors in Tales from Halloween, Tales. correct? Yeah. And uh, so tell me about that because everybody's film was kind of self-contained and very little money to do it
2: but yeah that was a rough one um not rough for me but i mean it was uh you're dealing with a bunch of filmmakers a bunch of personalities Mm -hmm. very little money Mm -hmm. um and so it was awesome in the fact that we're all friends and that's what i love and that's what i also love about what you were able to create with the masters of horror series is that you're not dealing with strangers you're dealing with people that are family they're they're friends and family so that was awesome about it um it was hard for me because it was the first time I'd, I again I've been very lucky that I do movies that have a budget with them, right? And now they're basically like, "Here's a nickel, you got, you <laughs> yeah. got, you got a day, go figure it out." Yeah, and uh, it was funny because I just gotten back uh, from shooting Abattoir. And uh, my wife was nine months pregnant. And and she says, you are not going to go do another movie. And so I (laughs) called up the producers. I called up Mike Mendez and and, uh, And Patrick Ewell and Axel. And I said, guys, I'll do it, but it's got to be on my street. And so they had to figure out how to do the whole thing on my street. And uh, so we shot... And on my street, and then two days later, my wife goes into labor and. Oh my god! How many days did you get? Four or five? Uh, No, I think I had two and a half. Oh my! I think mine cost more than anyone's, and this was (laughs) well, it's it's, more than Neil's. (laughs) Probably not more than Neil's, but uh, there was. we thought because we were on my street, uh, everyone was going to be cool and we can just do it. But somehow the police heard about it oh, and they no. made us, we have a, I, I lived on a cul-de-sac with, I lived on a street that is four ways. So we had a three different police officers to block it all off. And so the, it just became a, it became. Is this a, where
1: all of them were shot? No, most, just my, yeah, most just were yours. in Eagle Rock. I think yeah, I was yeah. the only
2: one that shot on my street. And, mm. uh, uh, some of my neighbors still don't talk to me. I, I set <laughs> one of my neighbor's lawns on fire. Oh, nice. Yeah, I said, hey, can I use your front yard? And she's like, absolutely, just don't do anything crazy. And uh, we set it on fire. So uh, it's, it's good times. Well, you've
1: done sequels mm-hmm. and remakes, yeah. and but for your own, you actually came back to the world of Repo. Mm-hmm. and did uh hallelujah devil's carnival. Yeah. But that was kind of a multimedia thing. Tell me about that cuz I saw that yeah. in Santa Monica.
2: So what my the, the the thing I'm most proud of in my career is not the saw movies, it's it's not the mother's day. It is the things I've been able to do with fan interaction. Mm-hmm. Um it started with Repo, it then went to Devil's Carnival and then finally led me to the Tension Experience, which is like the grand the grand thing of all these. But Repo or sorry Devil's Carnival we said I want to do what we did with the repo again, but I want to own it. And so I'm going to finance it and I want to make it just for the fans. And I, I, I want to make the whole thing centered around an interaction with the fandom. And so when we constructed it, the whole idea was how can we make a traveling carnival? How can we make a traveling circus and make fans want to show up? Uh, movies have become very passive. You you sit down and we talk at you. How can I talk to them? How can I involve them so they feel they're a part of something? They're in the middle of something. So Terrence, myself, and Sar, the co-creator, all got together and we kind of made this bigger-than-life, crazy, very flamboyant, bo- bo- boisterous musical. And then we said, let's bypass trying to sell it. Let's let's just worry about the theaters. Let's four-wall the theaters and let's make it an event. And I think we ended up doing 60 theaters. Um, It took two months, two and a half months to go around. And we turned each theater into a crazy weird environment. We would have gospel singers or X-rated clowns or contortionists or fire eaters. And and we made it a sideshow. It was multimedia. I mean, you had movie, but you also
1: had live acts
2: performing. If you're going to ask, I mean, here's the thing is, as an independent filmmaker now, it's hard to recoup money and it's – if you have a budget, either you have to get a huge theatrical release or it has to be one of those lightning in a bottle things. So I said, how can I finance films um, and not have to worry about distribution? So what we did is we looked at a ticket price. What would a fan pay if we can give them a night of entertainment? Not mm-hmm. just not just a movie but a, a reason to get out, a reason to dress up, a reason to you know be wild and crazy. And so that's what we did. We would give them, you know, when you went to one of our shows, it would usually start with the door prize contest, a costume contest, sing along contest, documentaries before, uh, Q and A after, and the movie. And we encouraged be as wild as you want to be, be as crazy as you want to be. And we were able to sell out every single show. And we're not talking about two hundred seat theaters. I mean, some of the theaters we did was six, seven hundred seats. And you and, could only do one show at a time. One show, one show per night. Um, and then we would sell merch after the fact, but we owned it all the the artists owned everything, and it was there was no creative accounting, like we saw where every dollar came in, every dollar went um and so it was very successful to the point that we were able to do a sequel um with the alleluia one, and it was a mistake uh It was one of those things mm-hmm. about me I should have said no at the time. Mm-hmm. what made devil 's Carnival so great was the artists owned and controlled it. We didn't have to answer to anyone. We can do what we want. Uh, and it was our way. And then with Devil's Carnival 2, uh, we partnered with a company that just wanted to... I think they just saw what we were doing was cool. But the minute we started doing it, they wanted to put their finger in it. They wanted to put their hand in it. They wanted mm-hmm. to tell us what we could or couldn't do. And it, when you're doing something culty like this... You can't, you can't mix and match like that. You can't do that. It's got to run a specific way.
1: Well, and you also have to be passionate about every element of it. If somebody's standing in your way, it's hard to maintain that.
2: Well, with Devil's Carnival, it was so much of us. I mean, we were on the road. Like We were staying in the the, 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 the shadiest motels. Like We were every night away from our families. It was like a rock concert. We were touring everywhere. Yeah. And so the minute the bureaucracy got in place, it stopped making it fun. And so the experience of making the movie was awesome. The experience of doing those first few premieres were awesome. And it did succeed in what we wanted to do was we made a movie for the fans. It's not for mainstream America. If most people are going to watch it and roll their eyes at it. But for the community (laughs) that we made it for, it's it's amazing. And I love that I get to make movies uh, that fans have this kind of reaction for.
1: What about theater? What about doing something that 's strictly theater? You started as a theater student. What about uh, the idea of an entirely live production?
2: Well, that was my answer a little bit to the tension experience, which is definitely not for everyone, but mm-hmm. it is is it, right now at thirty nine years old it is the proudest i've been of anything i've done and it's i'm going to i'm going to warn everyone listening right now don't do it you don't want to do it it's not for you now that said it's
1: um <laughs> hey you're talking to this audience I know. Yeah, yeah it's
2: the game it's what it is we yeah. are doing the michael douglas thing the game but right. we are the company and so what it is 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 you sign up with us and it's intense it's not a joke you you sign up it's a very extreme waiver it's a very extreme series of questions And we will manipulate your life. We will fuck with your life. And we will put you in the middle of a narrative built for you. Um, And we started off uh, in 2016. Uh, We had 75 actors all throughout Los Angeles. Um, And it ended up turning into this huge thing that literally you were the lead of your own horror film. You Mm -hmm. were indoctrinated into a cult. You had to save a girl. And the only way you could do it was through interacting. You had to interact with actual people. So imagine as a fan of horror movies it's not like you're watching jigsaw do horrible things to people you are in the trap and jigsaw is talking to you he's breathing on you you can smell the sickness you can smell the rot you can do whatever Mm. but your choices change everything so unlike a haunted house where you're pushed from room to room to room whatever you say however you respond however you react will change and alter your time through the script was in, it ended up being well over 400 pages oh when it was God. all said and done because every actor had 10 scripts. It wasn't just like, here's your script. It was, if they do this, you say this. If they do this, you say that. So it's like a That's almost your... as long as the stand script. Oh, my. I, I don't even <laughs> want to think about that. That I know. yeah. I, that, was, that was intense. <clears throat> uh, but anyway, that, Sorry. That's that It's me all, is all about, about me right
1: now. No, yeah. Well,
2: let's make it yeah. about you. <laughs> no. Uh, so, uh, that, that's my answer to theater. It is a kind of theater. It mm-hmm. is a theater that is meant to push your buttons and upset you. Um, it's, we're doing the sequel right now called Lust, which is a, imagine if you could, you asked about filmmakers that inspire me, Stanley Kubrick. Um, imagine if you could step foot and eyes wide shut and stand mm-hmm. in the, and that's what Lust is right now. So we're, we've just started Lust. Um, and you literally sign up and you are thrown into a sex cult. And you have to maneuver and manipulate your way around by dealing with dozens and dozens of actors. Uh, and depending on your choices, it will lead you to any number of nefarious places.
1: Well, there must be legal uh, documents that the oh, audience has to sign before yeah. they go in,
2: right? Well, I, I was mentioning that 95% of what I do is, is business. It's not creative. Mm-hmm. Um, the legalities, the waivers, the the insurance to do one of these is insane because we're touching you, we're moving you, we're putting you in cars. So we have an example, we have four different insurance policies. We have a car insurance policy, a building insurance policy, a personal safety insurance policy. You have to sign two different waivers throughout the course of just the first introduction thing. It, it's, a, it's a very laborious process, but it, it it affects people more than, in my opinion, in the movies I've done because a movie. You're ninety minutes, unless you're doing the stand or you're oh, doing the, yes. the shining TV yeah. show. You're you're uh, you get ninety minutes with them. One hundred and twenty minutes uh, with this. This takes months and months and months of your life, and it it requires you to communicate and be present. And we're not present today. We we hide behind our cell phones. We hide behind our TV shows. Here you are interacting with real people. They're touching you. They're pulling you. They're whispering to you. It becomes that much more real. You are a you are the star of your own movie. What has been the
1: strongest surprising reaction you've had from an audience member of one of your live shows?
2: At, I mean, I, when we did The Tension, and this sounds ridiculous and it sounds, um, I would be rolling my eyes if I were listening to the podcast now, what I'm about to say, but it's true. The break, the, the, I think the people breaking down and crying at the end of Tension. Um, mm-hmm. There's a documentary, a 10-minute documentary you can see on, on the tensionexperience.com. But we, what we did was not, vicious it was not scary no one jumped out and screamed boo but we broke you you broke your psyche down we'd put you in very uncomfortable positions emotionally and you would have to um, you would have to basically confess things to strangers and what we learned is is the more we did this the more people would break down their their barriers they would they would they would take off the armor they wear to get through the day and so we would have, I would say, 50% easy of the people when they would leave tension just in tears, shock, uh, things that they would admit, things that they would say, talking about their their past relationships and them being unfaithful, horrible thing, things they've done to people they love in their lives. It was like a cathartic psychological uh, release. And so I think that I wasn't prepared for that. Like I wanted to make something to affect people and scare them, but I don't think we realized what it would actually do to people Going through the experience,
1: do you think you could do that on a filmic level? This is an entirely interactive thing. You'd have to be face to face, right? I
2: think a TV show. I think a TV show has a much better attempt at it than a film does. Um, because when you when you when you give yourself over to a TV show, you're committing hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and it's a long, drawn out process. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come into you in one one chunk. It's weeks, months, or years. I've been what I've been on Game of Thrones now. Eight years, nine years, however many years it's been. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a relationship with those characters, but the, the reality is, they take two years off in between seasons, so those relationships wane, and I cheat on Game of Thrones <laughs> and ten other shows. So the question is, I think you have more of an ability to do that with something that is a limited series, like and which you've done many of those, um, because you, you're you're able to get in someone's home. For an extended period of time, pretty rapidly in succession. I think if you could do that, it's now we face a problem as artists to get people to pay attention and not be hmm. distracted. And it's so easy to be distracted right now. There's so much content out there. There's and everybody
1: so, watches their television, their giant screen television, while they've got their iPad or their iPhone in their hand. Doing
2: a million other things. So I okay. watch TV and I'm tweeting and I'm Facebooking and I'm Instagramming and I'm making my kid dinner and I'm yelling you know, at my dog for chewing stuff and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making lattes. Yeah, <laughs> it's to actually be present, to actually be... In the middle of a of a moment, a cinema is harder and harder and harder to do now. It, it it's hard.
1: Well, you've also embraced technology. You showed me some things that you had uh, in store that use a lot of technology that would not normally be just in a film. Tell me a little bit about your experience in and. Well,
2: I think I think my experiments in that <laughs> as well. I think Steven Sodberg Soderberg, uh, Soden, Sodenberg? Soder- Soderberg. Soder- Soderberg, Soderberg. <laughs> beat me to yeah. it with uh, his thing that he just released uh called mosaic which oh, yeah. was which is something that I was working on for about the last 4 years and it I'm sure you've had this we work on something for a long time and then someone comes up with something similar um I had this idea called multiverse which is where tension kind of spawned from and I'm still working on it but it basically is we carry around a computer with us everywhere we go and you know most people have games on it or they have movies on it but my idea was to tell a completely a, a complete narrative that um, is a companion piece to the content you're watching. So let's say you go watch a movie. Let's go say you watch a uh, TV show. You can continue your experience through your mobile device. So if you were to go watch... uh, have you seen Ritual? The movie that was just on Netflix. I
1: just saw it. I it's, just, I it's I, great. I loved it. And I was going to say it's
2: great. That my favorite horror film, I think, of the year so far. I would agree. So, yeah. So it, let's just use Ritual for example. If you haven't watched it, pause the podcast, go watch Ritual, and come <laughs> back. We'll wait. Um, but you you take a mystery like Ritual. These 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 guys go camping in the woods. Uh, but you, as a consumer, now can continue the storyline by following their what they've done as a digital footprint. You can access their emails, their phone calls, their the music they listen to, their GPS coordinates. So, and, and you think about that: if you leave your cell phone anywhere, it tells a story about you. You would see uh, how I am as a person based on my personal text messages, my emails, all of that. So if you had four different characters with four different cell phones, that's four completely different perception shifts on what we showed on the movie. So if you watch Ritual, you think one thing. Mm -hmm. But if you get their cell phone and you can access all of their information, it gives you a completely different picture of them, who they are. And so I was working on a companion piece for any movie that I do that basically furthers the narrative before and after you watch the movie based on their digital footprint. It's, I know it's kind of weird, but I think you're going to see more and more immersive things like that.
1: No, I think it's fascinating. And Mosaic, I've only seen the HBO version. Right. You know? I haven't
2: seen the branching out yeah. and all of that. But uh, Soderbergh is a great
1: explorer.
2: He does. He does. And that's what I love about him is he, he's, you know, he's a, a mainly an insanely talented high, you know, he works for the, the most, you know, the biggest studios, but he'll take these art projects and he You know, you got to admire someone with the balls to basically say, F you to the system. I'm going to go make this movie because I want to do it. And so he's one of those guys now that I really look up to and admire because he just, it seems to me that he doesn't care. He's just going to do what he wants to do. And, you know, there's a lot of filmmakers like that now that I just love to watch and see.
1: Yeah, guys who aren't wedded to the norm.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: So what were some of the things after you were doing Saw, some of the studio type things that came your way that
2: you decided to turn up your nose to? (laughs) I have regrets of things I turned up my nose. Like coming from the world of Stephen King, you would, uh, one of the things that I was attached to very early on was Children of the Corn. Mm. And it was one of my favorite movies growing up. Really? Uh, I loved it. Um, Maybe because I grew up near a lot of cornfields, and I would play in the corn. We had corn Kansas, in our yeah. yeah, we had corn in our backyard. So my sister and I would go back and play Malachi and I. Right. So, uh, <laughs> Outlander, yeah, Outlander, he who walks behind the rose. Yeah. Um, so when that came to me, uh, I originally was really excited, and then I was then I said no to it because I was like, I don't want to ruin a childhood memory of mine and upset <laughs> people. In retrospect, I wish I would have done it because I think we. Could have done something cool with it? I wish you had to. I know, yeah. It, yeah, I love it. And I wanted to go back to the original source material, not the not the, the movie, but the source material where the husband and wife hated each other. They, they hated each other and it, yeah. it, it made this, right off the bat, you're uncomfortable, not because of what's going on in Gatlin, you're uncomfortable because their relationship. And uh, so I really, I think I missed an opportunity and I, I in retrospect, wish I would have done that. Um, Any other things that maybe you were not so regretful of turning down? scanners um you know I, I there was a there was a moment that i was attached to scanners and david goyer wrote the script it was right before the writer strike uh, and I, I have this thing. I said, I'll never touch a remake if the original creator is not okay with it. And yeah. I, I met, <laughs> I met, met uh, I met Cronenberg yeah. in Toronto, and I walked up to him and I was like, "Hey, uh, I'm currently attached to uh, the Scanners remake, and let's just say in a look, I, I saw everything I needed to know right yes. then and there." <laughs> David didn't. Yeah, does no, he was not. He, he He though. was. He does not suffer fools lightly. Yeah. Uh, there, there was that one. I turned down. I turned down. Um, a long time ago in my career, that uh Jim Carrey movie number twenty-three, I think it was called mm-hmm. number twenty-three. Yeah. He wasn't attached to it at that point. But uh there was that. Um I've been lucky in the fact that usually I only pursue projects I want to do. And I'm horrible at this. I'm horrible at reading scripts. Uh, scripts will sit on my desk for months and months and months and I don't read them. I just don't. So uh I've been uh I've been lucky that I've been able to develop mostly my own stuff even when I've had my my deals, it's been developing because Mother's Day was originally a script called Wichita. Um, really? Yeah, that we we made Wichita into Mother's Day. So even Just that, like you
1: made your script yes, into desperate. Saw yeah, two.
2: exactly. Yeah. So I've been very 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 lucky with that. Um, I can tell you, there's a lot of there's a lot more movies that got away from me that oh, I. Well, that's wish, what I was going to yeah. ask
1: too. Is what's the one that got away that you wished you'd done?
2: Um, it, it's still there, and there's still there's there's one script that I read very early on in my career that I read it and it, it affected me so greatly and so deeply. It was the first time in my career that I wanted to fight for something. And I mean, Mm -hmm. literally go to bat where I'd show up to producers houses in the middle of the night and wait until they woke up. (laughs) It was this movie called the many deaths of Barnaby James. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it was, it was on the blacklist. Uh, it's, I think it's been 15 years. still hasn't been made. Uh, I, it was a, it was a spec script sent to me to look at a writer's, a, a writing sample and I read it, I flipped out, I loved it. I called my agent, I was like, I want this. He he uh he called the manager and said Balsman wants us immediately. And they were like, well maybe, maybe we should send this to some other people. And the next thing I know, there's a bidding war between everyone in town oh, and God. Leonardo DiCaprio ended up buying it. Wow. And it sat with Appian Way for 10 years or eight years, and they couldn't get it made. It's so fantastical and so weird and crazy. It, it's like Sin City meets The Devil's Carnival, meets Repo, meets Pulp Fiction, meets, I don't know. It is it's it is a fantastical, crazy movie. It's written for you. It is. That's, yeah. it's, that's exactly yeah. it. It's written for me. But it's been, it's one of those movies that have sat in Hollywood for 15 years and no one can figure out how to get it made because it's just so out of the box. That one, and there's a book that I guess everyone in Hollywood has tried to make and there's like a billion dollars against it now so there's no way it can, <laughs> it's, it's something called Dirty White Boys which uh. is a prison movie and it's uh. I think the Copelsons have it. And I think again, every filmmaker in town has tried to make it and, and just has failed. But that one I, I looked at the rights to, and it's been, uh it's no way at this point now there's like $25 billion to even try to get the rights of it out.
1: <laughs> and what is the dream project of your own that is yet to be made?
2: Flowers in the attic is always one that I've really, yeah. And VC Andrews. Yeah. And it's crazy because when you read it, it, It might be masqueraded as a girl's, you know, a teenage angst book. Mm -hmm. It's a monster movie. It is one hundred percent a monster movie with the parents being monsters, the grandmother and the mother. It is horrific. It is psychological. It is terrifying. Um, And uh, you know, there was there was a day uh, that I I actually did have uh, a back a producer that was very interested. but one of their first kind of mandates was we need to lose the incest, and that if, if for those that have read the book, it's it's the kind of central story that's going on in it. Not, it's not a huge part of it, but it's it's important for what these kids go through and what happens to them.
1: No, but it's like cutting the testicles
2: off. It, it is, yeah. and so to me that was kind of a. I realized at that point if they want to do that, if these particular people want to do that, it wasn't it wasn't worth pursuing, but. To me, I, I've always, always, always loved uh, Flowers in the Attic. I think it could be, a, and I know they just Lifetime just did it and had a huge success with it. So I think that's going to be 15 years before I get to, yeah. to remake that.
1: Well, you're going to Thailand to make a movie next. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I,
2: about that. Uh, you know, again, let's, that's yeah. me knocking on wood. Um, <laughs> I, got a, I got a film. It's one of the few films that, again, it's not one of mine. I, it's, it came to me. Uh, I'm going to be careful about how much I say about it, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, a couple, um, go on a vacation and very terrible things begin to happen. But it's got very much undertones of two of my favorite films, which is Rosemary's Baby and Wicker Man, which are Mm. are both movies that I love. The original Wicker Man to me is still one of those movies I go back and revisit all the time.
1: I saw it when it first came out. It was test screening when I was living in San Diego as a kid in the early 70s. And it didn't play. I just saw, oh boy, a Christopher Lee movie opening here. I had no idea it was a test screening
2: of a movie they would
1: never release with Warner Brothers. And that just blew my mind when I saw it. It was so great.
2: Well, I can't imagine not knowing anything about it, just seeing his name and thinking, oh, you're going to go see what, and it's exactly. so, yeah. so, did you see the sequel they made recently? Or not recently, they, they, they did like oh, a loose. Oh, the, that the, Robin,
1: uh, yeah. the
2: original director, he wrote and directed the yeah. sequel. He, he <sighs> wrote the novel too, Yeah, uh, Robin Hardy. Yeah, I, 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 maybe I did good, not see it. I, did I not made it through it. like 12 minutes. Yeah. And oh, it's, geez. Yeah, maybe maybe it ends up being a, a great film, but it's – uh. I, I have a hard time revisiting classics. Like, I won't watch Amelie again. I won't watch mm-hmm. it again because it's such a magical film.
1: Oh, the first that, time it's so yeah. surprising and spectacular.
2: And so I've now stopped watching sequels to, to beloved films that I love mm. or going back and re-watching movies that I love because I want that memory. I want that memory of what it was like when I saw Amelie in the theater for the yeah. first time. I want that mem- that, that thing. Now, uh, luckily, I, I did rewatch The Thing numerous times and that hasn't, that hasn't warned off, but, no. but some movies I can't go back and, I can't go back and rewatch. I, I can't do it.
1: So back to Thailand.
2: Yes. Oh, so Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's, yeah, it, it's, uh, very horrible things happen to these, these people. Um, in a
1: very exotic location, in a
2: very exotic location. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of weird. It's been my third movie recently leaving to go out of the country to a foreign land to do from, uh, you know Barcelona to Japan and now going to uh, Thailand to do this uh, thing. What's it called? It's called the death of me, but I it might uh, that might change. That might change. That might change. Yeah.
1: Well, I can't wait to see what's in store next, and I, I really uh, appreciate you coming on the show and having a chat. Uh, I am a us. huge
2: fan, and so it's uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, Darren, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, have a good. Thanks for listening to Post Mortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.